Cheers! Kampai! Salute! Gambe! Skull! Prost! Hello, and welcome to the Drunken Storytellers podcast, where I tell folk tales and folklore from around the globe. So sit back, grab yourself a drink, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to episode 16 of the Drunken Storytellers podcast. Um, I'm hoping this episode is going to go okay. I've got the window open because it's quite hot at the moment. Hot for UK standards and my weak ass that I've become since leaving Japan. I'll try and edit out any noises that I can hear in the background. In this episode, uh, we shall be going back to the mystical islands of Japan. So, yeah, I mentioned that in the last episode, and so we are going to do that. Um, I spent far too long on this one looking for English translations of things and uh, gave up on a lot of it because my Japanese sucks balls right now. It's definitely nowhere near as good as it used to be and my reading is shocking. Shockingly bad, I shall say. But first, as always, what am I drinking? As we're in Japan, um, I've got a the only Japanese beer I can get my hands on um, around here, which is Asahi. I've mentioned this before, it's not my favourite. I would much rather be drinking Sapporo or Ebisu. But I can't get them around here, so bugger. Um, little bits of news and things and a quick reminder that I am running the London Marathon and I am training in this heat in England and it is not fun. So please uh, do check out the links in the, in the, what do you call it, in the show notes uh, down below where I've got a link to the charity No Man Is An Island and a Just Giving link where you can donate. Um, no Man Is Island is a great charity. They are trying to raise HPV awareness and, and get vaccinations across everybody so we can wipe out 5% of cancers worldwide. Other things, the second part to the things from the Flood Game is now up on YouTube um, and and Twitch as well. It's on my Twitch. Where the, uh, the erstwhile teenagers do discover some true horror rather than just fucking around and, and, and burying, well not even burying, hiding a skeleton in the backyard of a chippy. They do some other weird stuff, but then it does all go a bit dark towards the end. So that was good. The next game is being planned as we speak. It's actually a game based on a French folklore tale. And I'm going to tell that tale next episode. So you shall hear more about the game then. But it will be live on Twitch on June 18th and 25th at 7pm BST. It will also be uploaded to my YouTube, um, so you can catch it up there. But it is a folklore game. A game based, well it's not a folklore game, it's a game based on a folklore tale and is, is quite cool. Uh, again, I've got another group of amazing players. I won't be running it this time, which is kind of cool. I actually get to play in a game, which is also going to be a bit weird. I find it weird playing in games. This is like the first major length of time that I'll have spoken since Friday. So if my voice sounds a bit funny and croaky, one, it's because it's really hot and I went for a long run earlier today. Um, and two, because I've not used my voice much recently. Anyway, uh, on with some of folklore today. I won't be following any particular tale or delving into any particular cre- specific creature or specific tale in this. I'm going to give kind of more of an overview of some some themes across certain parts of Japanese folklore in a way. I'll give a brief description of them and kind of give some specific examples at the end as well. I have been meaning to do a deeper dive into Japanese folklore for quite some time, um, but I've done a little bit in some episodes, like the the Snakes episode, where we looked at the Orochi tale. We've done stuff on Kappa as well, but this is going to be this is going to be a full episode on Japanese folklore and and mythology. But yeah, and despite me having plans 
and a rough kind of schedule of what I want to do each episode. Uh, I tend to uh, get distracted easily, so it's like I go on tangents and things get moved around. It's like, oh, I want to do this and I want to do that, and then it kind of comes up and I've done something else instead. So this is one of those episodes where this wasn't actually planned. This wasn't in my uh, in my plan of doing things, but I think it's something that I need to do. Um, I've been meaning to do it for a long time, so I thought I'd throw it in here, and it's kind of inspired by me doing some RPG writing at the moment, so I thought, why not delve into it a little bit? So um, I'm hoping... And I say this before I've recorded this, and before I've uh, edited it and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's, I'm hoping it's not going to be as long as the last episode. Um, but I do have a lot of notes here. So we shall see how it goes. But the idea is that it's not going to be an hour's episode. <laughs> I apologise if it is. First off, before we kind of delve into the actual folklore and mythology... A little bit about the name Japan. As you all probably believe, the kanji translates uh, to Land of the Rising Sun. And I feel that I should probably correct you all on this. It doesn't technically mean that. If you look at the individual kanji that make up um, the name in Japanese, it means either sun roots or sun origin. And then you kind of get that twisting of that to mean kind of the roots of the sun or the origins of the sun and then we in the west kind of turned it into land of the rising sun but there is and i'll say in a little bit more a little bit later uh, another reason why land of the rising sun kind of comes up but again i think it's kind of a translation thing so um the name was adopted uh, by the country in the 8th century uh, when they took the kanji that when you read it in japanese it can be either read as nippon or nihon so in modern Japan, Nippon is used in a more kind of official context or for some bizarre reason at international sporting events where you'll hear lots of shoutings of Nippon and then lots of clapping Nippon, duh, 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 Nippon, duh, duh, duh. Um, whereas Nihon is used in kind of more informal spoken word settings. So there's a little bit of difference, but they mean the same thing. It's one of those things where you get different readings for different kanji. Um, and I think the kanji for Go, Iku or I, the first part can have up to like 14 different readings. It's crazy. Um, but before this time, so before like the 7th and 8th century, Japan was known by quite a few different names, both within Japan and in China, where we kind of pick up its name from. One of the most accepted original Chinese names for the string of islands, and at the time it was only eight of the islands, is Wa. And from what I can gather... It mean it can mean one of three things. It means either submissive, distant, or dwarf. Uh, don't quote me on that. I'm not up on ancient Chinese kanji. Surprise, surprise. But yeah, it kind of I think it, I think it kind of relates to eight of the the islands that now make up the six hundred six thousand eight hundred and fifty two islands that make up the country today. And it was like the eight biggest islands. The natives of the mainland island, the main island. So the big island, Honshu, um, it was called Yamato at the time. And one meaning, or one modern meaning of this is great harmony. It's different kanji uh, to the ancient reading, but great, great harmony. So, but it's kind of a major philosophy that runs throughout most of Japan. Um, and it's something you'll hear about quite a lot when you do go to Japan is the, the philosophy of Yamato or great harmony. 
Kind of a side note to that, <laughs> during World War II, uh, the Japanese built probably the most powerful battleship to ever been constructed, and they called it Yamato. Uh, however, it didn't survive the war because of various reasons, and it was sunk uh, near Okinawa in the Pacific. Also, there's a phrase called Yamato Domashi um, in Japan, which is used as kind of like the fighting spirit and never give up and stuff like that. So, As I say, there are also many 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 other names before like the 7th and 8th century um, like the country was obviously divided into warring tribes it was divided into different islands and each island had this different name and different clans called the island different things so even different parts of china called it different things as well so it wasn't until around the 7th century when the the government um, started using the name nihon or using the kanji to refer to themselves as Nihon. Japan didn't pick up the, the kanji writing system till I want to say, 4th century. I can't really remember off the top of my head, but it's something they, they adapted from China at some point. And one of the ways that I, one of the stories I remember when I was learning it is how they, how they originally shared languages. They wrote on the sand on the beaches in sticks in kanji, and they could understand that, but they couldn't understand each other's speak. There you go. And that's kind of a little bit of a kind of a little bit of a history of where the, the name originates from. I think I've actually got more further down here. I can't remember where I put it. Japan was introduced to the Western world by a famed Italian trader and explorer, and apparently the discoverer of spaghetti. And as this is a mythology and folklore podcast, uh, that true is a fucking myth. It is not fucking true. Spaghetti was possibly first made in Sicily around the 12th century. So again, a bit side note, side tangent here again. Um, there's a man by the name of Abu Abdullah Muhammad al-Idrisi, uh, and he was commissioned in 1139 in Palma, Palermo in Sicily to research a work of global geography. He did create this. It was kind of a large fucking book, and it was known as the Book of Roger. For some reason, I think I've mentioned the Book of Roger on this podcast before. I thought it was when I was talking about Mesopotamian laws and stuff, but it apparently wasn't. So um, it might have been something to do with the number 13. I can't remember. Uh, but yeah, the Book of Roger. What a great name. Uh, anyway, it's a fucking tomb. It's a massive book. And it said such heretical things like, The earth is round like a sphere. Yeah, that's right. Fucking known it for fucking centuries, you fucking nut jobs the earth is round even the ancient greeks knew it was fucking around so stop trying to pretend it's flat you fucking imbeciles the book of roger is considered actually a great work of scientific importance um, especially for the middle ages and it was appreciated and accepted by muslims jews and christians alike and surprisingly enough the original manuscript actually survives intact to this day so we we do know a lot of information about it uh, but one note in it says that the Sicilian town of Trabian, uh, they made pasta from hard wheat and it was shaped into long strands and made in large quantities so they could export it. So you kind of see where they might have thought spaghetti comes from Sicily. And this is all about a hundred years before Marco Polo was born. You learn things when you look up about Japan apparently that have nothing to do with Japan. I got sidetracked and uh, wanted to know where spaghetti came from because Marco Polo has something to do with the name. You'll see that in a second. So yeah, back to the name. Japan was introduced to the to the West, basically Europe, in the 13th century 
where Marco Polo recorded the Mandarin or the Wu Chinese pronunciation using the kanji used to write the, the name, and he recorded the name as Ji Bang. Other similar names kind of came around as well. Um, so one of the ones comes from Old Malay, uh, and that is Japang or Japun. And this was brought to Europe by European, uh, not European, by uh, Portuguese traders in the early 16th century. The name first appears in English, as far as I can tell, as either Giapan or Japan. I'm guessing it's a, it starts with a G, and it comes from a Portuguese document, so I'm guessing it's probably Japan um, in 1577. So we've known about Japan for about 500 odd years, 400, 500 years, which is a lot longer than I thought for some reason, I don't know. Um, so back to the, fra- the phrase Land of the Rising Sun and about where it comes from. So I didn't check up too much on this because I was getting, I should have been doing other things and this was only kind of like a side distraction. Um, and I'm not quite sure how true this statement is. So apparently in the 7th century there was a letter from the Japanese government and from the Emperor of Japan to China. And it used the phrase from the Emperor of the Land of the Rising Sun to the emperor of the setting sun. And it was possibly in deference to China, as China, as to China, Japan is where the sun rises. But the sun doesn't rise in Japan, obviously. And from Japan, it looks like it rises from the sea, but from China, it looks like it rises from Japan. So land of the rising sun, that's kind of one of the reasons why people think that. Possibly, maybe, I don't know. Uh, Someone go check it up, because I didn't look too much into that. But you can also see how you can kind of get the translation from the, the, the kanji being sun roots or sun origin. I see the kanji as roots, so I've always called it sun roots or roots of the sun. I was also going to do a bit of a brief history lesson on Japan as well and kind of take you through some of the, like the Heian period and the Sengoku period and stuff like that and kind of go through the Reformation a bit quickly um, and all sorts of stuff like that. But um, yes, I'm a bit too... I got a bit too carried away with doing other things before I got to that, so that's going to le- that's going to happen in another episode. Let's go and look at some myths and folklore about things that change shape. So I know I called this episode uh, "Changelings from the East," and many people probably, especially some of the people that I hang around with and know, listen to this, might instantly relate that to European myths of changelings and baby stealing fake creatures, but nope. This is more kind of about things that change shape. There are a few things that you could probably connect to the European idea of a changeling, uh, but I've not really included them in this episode. This is going to be more of like shape-shifting, I suppose. Uh, Nippon does have a very rich and full storytelling history. It's Minkan Desho, or folklore. Uh, can be traced back many, many, many centuries to the birth of the nation and even before prehistoric Shintoism and things like that. So the tales, they're, they're wide and varied, and so we get things called kami, or gods, or spirits, and powerful deities. Um, Japan has, has got a bit of a kleptomania about these things. It has a friggin' metric ton of these things, and some, some sources kind of put it up to like in the region of about 8 million of these spiritual beings, supernatural creatures or kami or spirits or whatever you want to call them. So it's kind of like, yeah, fucking hoarding them, kleptomania or what. 
Um, but again, this is kind of where a little misunderstanding arises again. Kami does not directly translate to God. And I mean God here with a small g. Well, it does, but it doesn't necessarily mean a God. So in English, when we translate Kami, we generally see it translated as God with a small g. But it doesn't necessarily always refer to a God. It can refer to all kinds of supernatural creatures. From the boring to the monstrous, uh, the demonic to the divine, and all manner of weird, gribbly shit in between. So because humans are innately stupid, most of these appear to be malevolent, scary, and evil to us. Those that have this look, though, are not always not always have the personality that matches the look. And they all go by a variety of different names. Each within each of these names as well, there's a massive butt ton of like subcategories and stuff. So to list but a few, you have the Bakemono and the Obake. You have the Oni, the Yokai, Chimimoryo, Mamon, Mononoke. Yes, Mononoke as in Mononoke Hime. And you have the Tokai, the Onryo, the Unkai Butsu, and the Kai. And Kai Butsu does sound a bit like Kaiju. And yeah, it kind of is Kaiju. It just means big ass monster, basically, Kaiju. So I'll look into kind of these categories in kind of more detail at other points. Um, but again, within each, as I say, within each of these, there are subcategories. For example, uh, Kai. Um, or strange phenomena. There are there are things like the kaika, which are strange fires, uh, the hinotama, which are fireballs, and the tsukimono, which is uh, possession by a spirit, um, which also again then can break down into different kinds of possessions and different kinds of spirits and things. Um, well, so what am I going to talk about today, and what am I going to look at in a brief kind of overview way today? I'm going to be looking at bakemono or obake. And this translates to things that change, or shapeshifters as a kind of more commonly known term in a way. Now, with many of the supernatural kami, there is a lot of crossover with the other types, and some of the things I say here may fit better into other areas, um, and some may be better as as obake or bakemono. Um, I've chosen a few well-known ideas and a few that, and well one, I think, that fits into this area but might not generally be considered a bakemono in the sense that I'm talking about them. So if there's any scholars out there of Japanese mythology who are listening to this, uh, I'm sorry, I think, maybe, possibly. I'm not a scholar, I'm no expert in Japanese folklore, I just like the stories and the mythology. I'm talking about them from an interest point of view, um, and if anything I say is wrong or misleading and someone out there knows any better on the subject, please do get in contact and let me know. I know there's a few people out there on uh, the, the Twitter sphere that do know better than me. And if you do listen to this, uh, do let me know. Um, I'd love to kind of get better acquainted with these folk tales and folklore and things. Bakemono and obake is probably, if you watch anime or anything like that, it's probably a word that you've heard before. And you're probably not associating it with the things that I'm going to associate it with. Because for some reason... In English, we most commonly translate it into ghosts and not things that change or shape shifters. So a lot of the monsters and creatures that you see in Japanese movies and anime and TV programs are generally termed bakemono, which is kind of wrong. It's a mis misnomer. It's kind of a catch-all phrase, a bit like yokai or yuse, uh, yure which is an actual term for ghosts. 
But yeah, it, it kind of refers to supernatural beings that have undergone some kind of temporary or more permanent transformation. The connection to ghosts comes from the term obake, um, which kind of has the meaning of spirit or ghost of a deceased human. So kind of in the similar meaning to, as I say, yure, which is actually what in the West we would consider a ghost. So one of the, the, the weird and interesting and fun things about bakemono, and occasionally obake as well, is that they don't always have to transform from a living thing um, into a ghost or spirit. Quite often, inanimate objects can transform, in, transform into spirits and other things as well. For example, we have something like the Kodama, um, which you might recognise the name of from the Shiri Kodama uh, from the Kappa episode, which are spirits of plants and trees. Um, there's also the Sukumogami, um, or spirits of household items, such as the Kasabake, um, or the Umbrella Spirit. Yes, an umbrella gets a spirit after a certain point. So most of these items and, and things are believed to gain spirits after a period of time. Generally, they'll, 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 they'll exist for a certain length of time, and then they will gain a spirit. The general length of time is around 100 years. Not specifically sure why it's 100 years, but maybe because that is longer than a human's life, and therefore it's considered old, and it's seen things, and it's kind of learned, and then suddenly it becomes gains a spirit. I don't know. I'm just making shit up, as I usually do. So um, there's a there's a tree, um, the Fulutsubaki no Ulei, or Old Spirit of the Tsubaki Tree, um, which in English is the Rose of Winter or Camellia Japonica, uh, that when it reaches an old age is apparently able to separate their tree spirit from their host trees and or man- manifest in other ways to kind of piss around and fuck around with humans and, and just do weird shit. They're generally not evil, but they do like to piss off humans and just misbehave. And there are stories around there, um, around those as well. I was contemplating here telling a quick story entitled Torikaibaya Monogatari, um, which translates as if only I, I could exchange them and is often referred to as the changelings in English. But it's not actually something that is suited to this episode. It's not really about changelings in a way. Um, it's probably going to be more suited to next episode. And I'll explain that in next episode if I do, because it has a lot to do with sexual identity and crappy attitudes towards identity. And so now if you if you put together the fact that I'm talking about a French fairy tale and sexual identity and, and things like that, you might be able to work out what the next episode's on. Uh, let's look at some creatures now. So we've looked at um, household objects. There's a, um, There's lantern ones as well, actually. In the Secret Frequency Files 2 Second Transmission um, book, our tabletop RPG book, um, I did write some characters for kind of overarching Chronicles of Darkness games, and one of them was basically a lantern that had gained a spirit, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I did a, I did a Japanese section in there, which is kind of cool. Um, that was fun. I, I wrote so many things down for that. And most of it wasn't wasn't used. It might get used at some point in other things. We'll see. Anyway, so yeah, let's let's look at some creatures now that are considered back in one, uh, and then something, and then one thing that I think fits. Um, but we'll see. We'll we'll just go through these and just obviously cover a lot of the th- the things that most people will recognise now. Um, the so 
going to look at one of the most well-known Japanese folklore creatures for a second. And it appears all over pop media and pop culture. It's in a crap ton of anime. It appears in loads of art forms. And it's just kind of everywhere. And that's the kitsune, or the fox. In Japanese folklore, and all foxes have the ability to shapeshift into human form. And the older they get, the wiser they become. Some stories show the kitsune using its wisdom to trick others because the fox is a bastard and it's cunning. In other stories, it's actually portrayed as a very loyal friend and companion to humans and does help them, unlike the fucknut fox from Aesop's Fables. The age of the kitsune can also kind of be told and kind of its wisdom can be told by the number of tails it has. Uh, and the more tails it has, the older and wiser it is and nine is the most tales that it can have. So you'll quite often see in anime um, the heroes being a nine-tailed fox. I don't know much about anime, and there's one that I, that I know does this, and I can't for the life of me remember which one it is. So uh, anime nerds, don't kill me, please. But yeah, so they're also often associated with being messengers of the kami inari, uh, so the god of rice, tea, fertility, foxes, sake, agriculture, and industry. So not only do they collect gods, the gods collect titles and things that they want to be gods of. There's also a god of cucumbers, which is weird. Or a kami of cucumbers. There's a spirit of cucumbers. Every mountain has a kami as well, and things like that. So that's why there's loads of them. So again, uh, as with the Tsukumogami, uh, the kitsune can only transform once it reaches the age of 100. Uh, there's a whole thing it also must do before it becomes uh, a human. Uh, there is a Darker Days episode at some point in the distant past on Kitsune and how you can use them in games and a bit more information on them. I might do more on it, but it's it's one of the more well-known ones, so I can't be bothered. I want to look at other less well-known things. But I might delve into it maybe in another episode. I don't know. Moving on, uh, there's also the Bakedanuki. And this is a supernatural version of the tanuki. Um, the tanuki is it's a raccoon. And it's it's said to be able to transform into other objects or humans. Or even at times possess humans. Kind of in a similar vein, the mujina or a, the badger. Um, but this is much more kind of a trickster shapeshifter than the kitsune and the baku danuke. Um, and some stories kind of portray the Mujina as a faceless creature as well, so it's a little bit creepy, that one. Now, I am aware that I said that this episode was going to be shorter, so I am going to kind of cut it down a little bit now, because I've still got quite a bit left to go, so I'm just going to kind of go on to the next bit rather than delving into those. There is a book that shows and lists illustrations of 35 creatures, or 35 bakemono. And it's called the Bakemono Noet, uh, and it means illustrations of the supernatural creatures. It has some amazing woodblock prints, kind of in the Edo style of these creatures. They're absolutely beautiful and stunning. I really like the woodblock printings of Japan. Most of these yokai uh, follow kind of more the modern Western idea than that they are kind of ghostly and supernatural beings rather than that changeling or shapeshifter aspect. Having said that, though, the book kind of, with it being called Bakemono and things that change, it does change some of the ideas of some of the, some of the creatures within it. So there's one known as the Uwan, and before this book was published, this published this book was published in the Edo period, so kind of like the mid 
mid 1800s onward onwards um, and before that kind of period the yuan had had no form it, it was kind of more of a misty spirity creature kind of thing but when it kind of got published into the bakamononoe it became anthropomorphic it was given a human-esque form then there is the shokira uh, this is a hairless dog-like creature and it inhabits a human host we also have the Inugami, uh, that is similar to the Kitsune, but appears in regions where the Kitsune is absence. Abs- absent. Absent? Not abstinence. That's not the right word I want to be saying there. Absent. Um, inu is, it means dog, and Gami is another reading of the word Kami, so kind of like dog god, I suppose you can call it. Um, so we can probably say that there is kind of like a divergence or historical relationship maybe between the Kitsune and the Inugami. Uh, that's me again making things up. I don't know whether that's true or not, but I can kind of see that there might be a connection there. There's another book as well, kind of written again around the Edo period, and it's called the Mimi Bukuro. This is a collection of folk tales, and it was written by Moriyasu Nagishi, and it has a lot of tales, like wonderful folk tales in it, and I will one day get myself a copy of an English translation of this, if I can. Probably not. It's... We'll see. I... But... There are translations of the tales in other books and things around there. So there's um, there's tales of the Moryo, or the Mizuha. And this is a type of nature spirit, generally associated with mountains, rivers, trees, or rocks. And there is a tale within the Mimibukuro that talks of a Moryo uh, that takes on a human form. It works as a servant for someone called Shibata. And... One night, the 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 well, the Moryo turns up to Shibata and works as a servant in under Shibata. And one night, he turns around to Shibata and says, um, "I am not human. I am a Moryo, and I need to leave because I need to go and eat a corpse." So Moryo is it's a term which kind of encompasses again a lot of different types of Japanese spirits and supernatural creatures. But in this term, I'm using it. In, in this story, it is kind of a shapeshifter because it looks like a human and it lives among humans. And then he goes, yeah, no, sorry, sorry, boss. Um, I'm not actually human. I'm, I'm a Moryo. I'm, I'm a Kami. I'm a Yokai. Uh, and uh, I need to disappear and go eat a corpse. So see ya, I quit. And he does that. <laughs> um, so yeah, he's taken on this human form and then he buggers off and goes, robs a grave and eats a body. When they're not disguised as humans, um, they are said to be shaped like a small child of maybe three or four years old. They have beautiful red hair, red eyes, dark red skin, and long ears. Now, it's not technically considered a bakemono or a thing that can change, but the reference in Mimibukuro of them appearing as a human kind of does give them that connection. So this is where I kind of go into that realm of making connections that probably aren't there. I don't know, but the, the, a lot of the names, let's say there are crossovers, and there are a lot of catch-all terms within it, so... I just like the idea of the Morliot, and I like saying it Morliot. There are literally hundreds and hundreds and thousands of different yokai and bakemono out there. I shall endeavour to delve into these in more detail, and better detail at a later date. I kind of got stuck in a translation nightmare and rabbit holes as I was doing this. There was a story that I wanted to talk about and include, but I couldn't find any very verifiable information that it was a true Japanese folktale. Um, I know I talk, I, I say I talk a lot of crap in this, and generally it's me making up crappy connections with things, and it's I try to use real stories that I know are folkloric stories, but this one, it was really cool. 
but I couldn't find any evidence of it outside of this one source. Um, I even asked some of my Japanese friends if they'd heard of it, and they're like, no fucking idea what you're talking about. So um, that kind of led me down a hole, and so I kind of... Also, my, I, I could have probably Googled it myself, but I did try and Google it, but I looked at it and went, yeah, my Japanese sucks, and my reading is fucking horrendous. It wasn't great when I li- was living there, but now it's like... I can just about read katakana and hiragana, and I know maybe 20 kanji now. It's embarrassing. I feel embarrassed. Anyway, I should probably try and pick up my Japanese again, but you know, I'm doing a PhD, so that ain't going to happen. Except I am going to be in Japan next year, so that should be fun. God's willing and all that, and, and, and this whole pandemic thing doesn't continue. There's a conference that I might be going to in Kyoto. So that'll be fun. I might record an episode in Kyoto, walk around Kyoto and do some video footage, put it on my YouTube or something. I don't know. I've also put a notice it, note note here. It says, I don't get much fr- free time from my studies. He says doing a podcast on folklore that involves a crap ton of research each time he does this. Yes. Yes, yes, I do. This one, I really went down a rabbit hole. Um, I just kind of continued reading loads of stories. And I, went, I want to include that. I want to include that. I want to include that. And I didn't because otherwise this episode would be about four hours long. Word of warning, even though I did try and find everything, this episode may contain BS because it is a little bit hard to to track down weird folklore in Japan without kind of running into a lot of anime crap. And there are better people out there who know more about it than me. And if any of them are listening, please do get in touch. I would love to know more. I would love to kind of delve into this and find some better books than the ones that I've got. I hope you do enjoy that little, little delve into some Japanese folklore and mythology, and uh, a weird side tangent about spaghetti. So, <laughs> as you can always expect from me, I go on side tangents. So, um, and now the usual gumph. Please do like and subscribe uh, to my YouTube channel where you can watch the, the, the things from the Flood game and the, the next game that will be coming up. So say, I think uh, it was the 18th we're starting it. I think we're doing a session zero on the 18th and the game will be on the 25th. I can't, I'm not quite sure. Um, follow me on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Uh, please do on Apple Podcasts rate and leave me a comment because that will actually share it around. I'm doing all right at the moment. I've had over 400 downloads so far and I'm only on what episode 16, so I'm kind of happy with that at the moment. I would like to get it better, but we'll see. You can all, you can find me over on Twitter at the Drunken Store One. Um, you can find me on Facebook at The Drunken Storyteller, or you can email me at thedrunkenstorytelleruk at gmail.com. Um, you can get me on all of those. I'm probably more active on Twitter nowadays, but it's still not very active. Maybe you'll get a spam of messages from me every two days, I don't know. Um, I've already mentioned the marathon, so again, mentioning that again, I'm running the London Marathon. Um, I'm nearly 40, and I'm overweight, and I drink too much, uh, hence the name of this story, this podcast. So uh, please do help me out on that one, and please do help out the charity, because they are awesome, and we do need to stop cancer, because fuck cancer. You can also check me out over on my other podcast, over at Darker Days Radio, where we talk about horror-themed RPGs based from the world, world and Chronicles of Darkness, and some Warhammer RPGs as well. Um, I think this this week the next episode is going to be the second part of our uh, Deviant Renegades um, thing where we build a character, well Chig builds a character and I talk about uh, an aquatic fish that breathes fireballs. Yeah, that's a fun game, <laughs> but cool. So, well, uh, that is the end of that episode. 
um, this bottle has run dry and um, all I have to do is say thank you and goodbye.